Today is Wednesday, February the 28th, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Big Tech has been collecting and aggregating your personal data. Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Meanwhile, the National Security Agency has been purchasing Americans' internet browsing records from data brokers without first obtaining a search warrant. We have been bringing computer news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40-plus years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org, and we are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, that's prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The United States has returned to the moon. Odysseus, Landa makes history. Private company makes historic moon landing with Odysseus probe. Intuitive Machines successfully landed its spacecraft on the moon's South Pole in a historic mission that puts the United States back on the lunar soil for the first time in over 50 years. Intuitive Machines, Inc. made history Thursday when the Houston-based Space Exploration Company's Odysseus spacecraft became the first commercial lander to successfully reach the moon. The uncrewed Odysseus lander is also the first American spacecraft to reach the lunar surface since Apollo 17's Challenger lunar module in December of 1972. Odysseus, which is carrying NASA's science and technology instruments, reached the lunar south pole at 6.23 p.m. Eastern Time Thursday after an autonomous descent that concluded its journey to the moon. A nerve-wracking few minutes followed while Intuitive Machines Mission Control awaited communications from the probe before confirmation that a faint signal was received from Odysseus' high-gain antenna. Our equipment is on the surface of the moon, and we are transmitting, said the mission director on the live stream of the landing. After troubleshooting communications, flight controllers have confirmed Odysseus is upright and starting to send data. Intuitive Machines wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, at 8.25 p.m. Eastern Time. Right now, we are working to download the first images from the lunar surface. And true to its namesake, Odysseus' journey was fraught with trials. In particular, a malfunction in a spacecraft landing laser sent mission engineers scrambling. Without these lasers, the spacecraft temporarily lacked guidance for estimating landing distance. But after some tense moments, the engineers remotely uploaded a software patch for a NASA backup laser that was also on board. After nail-biting minutes followed as engineers worked to establish that the craft had safely landed, Finally, the team detected a faint signal from the moon's surface. 
Houston, Odysseus has found its new home. Tim Crane, the chief technology officer of Intuitive Machines, said as the control room erupted with cheers. Odysseus is alive and well. Intuitive Machines wrote in an update Friday morning the following. Flight controllers are communicating and commanding the vehicle to download science data. The lander has good telemetry and solar charging. The United States has returned to the moon. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said in a statement posted on X, formerly known as Twitter. The Odysseus mission is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, which the space agency established to incentivize the development of private sector lunar landers. Today is a day that shows the power and promise of NASA's commercial partnerships, Nelson said. NASA intends to contract these companies to transport cargo and scientific equipment to the moon. These instruments will prepare us for future human exploration of the moon under Artemis, the space agency wrote on X. Launch on top a Space Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida on February the 15th, Odysseus entered lunar orbit on February the 21st. It completed one tight loop over the lunar surface before slowing for landing with a few precisely timed engine bursts. Odysseus landed near the moon's Malapert A crater, an area chosen as a relatively flat and safe landing zone amid the moon's otherwise heavily cratered southern highlands. The region has long tantalized scientists with the presence of water ice, which could one day be a source for rocket fuel. The landing zone was also chosen because the location will help mission planners understand how to communicate and send data back to Earth from a location where Earth is low on the lunar horizon, according to NASA. NASA sent six payloads on board Odysseus, including a set of cameras designed to study the behavior of moon dust. The cameras are expected to start operating a few hours after landing and will run until lunar night, the 14 days of darkness when its side of the moon is faced away from the sun falls in about a week's time. Commercial moon landings are considered important scouting missions for NASA's Artemis Moon Exploration Program. Last month, NASA said it is targeting September 2025 for its first crewed Artemis mission around the moon, and September 2026 for its Artemis mission to land astronauts near the lunar South Pole. Odysseus is the second ship to ever land on the moon's South Pole and may become the first to take measurements of the conditions there. The first was India's Sandrayaan-3, which touched down successfully in August of 2023, but died not long after its arrival. Sending scientific tech to the moon is far from easy. Five of the last nine moon landing attempts have ended in failures, including last month's Peregrini mission from the Pittsburgh-based company Astrobotic Technology. This lunar lander became stranded in space after an oxidizer leak before crashing back to Earth. Even somewhat successful landings have had their hitches. Japan's slim lander made a record-breaking precise landing on the moon's last month, but it touched down the wrong way up. Complex lunar missions bring a high level of risk. In January, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency's uncrewed smart lander for investigating moon, that's SLIM, S-L-I-M, landed on the moon and, unfortunately, 
it landed on the lunar surface upside down. Other commercial moon landings have also been dogged with problems. In 2019, Israel's Bereshit attempted to become the first private lander on the lunar surface, but crashed during its landing attempt. Four years later, Japan's private Hakuto-R mission also failed to achieve a soft landing on the moon. Last month, private U.S. space company Astrobotic Technology ended its trouble mission to place its Peregrini lander on the moon. Like Astrobotic's Peregrini lander, Intuitive's Nova Sea lander is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, otherwise with the acronym CLPS, initiative to deliver science and technology to the moon's surface. Only five countries, the United States, the Soviet Union, China, India, and Japan, have completed moon landings, with the United States being the only country to place astronauts on the lunar surface. AT&T reveals the cause of Thursday's massive outage, an AT&T service outage that impacted a huge number of its customers across the United States last Thursday, was not caused by a cyber attack. The company's initial investigation has revealed. Instead, the cellular and internet outage was the fault of work that it was carrying out on its systems. AT&T said in a message posted on its website on Thursday evening, They said the following, Based on our initial review, we believe that today's outage was caused by the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network, not a cyber attack. The company said in the message, We are continuing our assessment of today's outage to ensure we keep delivering the service that our customers deserve. Well, here's an injection on my point of view, is why didn't they test it out fully before they roll it out? When you do testing, you do end-to-end testing, not just a little patch and hope that it works for everyone. Well, early in the day, AT&T said it had managed to restore wireless service to all of its affected customers. They said, we sincerely apologize. Keeping our customers connected remains our top priority, and we are taking steps to ensure our customers do not experience this again in the future, the company said. Yeah, I guess you're going to say you're going to do some testing now before you roll it out? The FBI said in a widely reported statement that it was in contact with AT&T regarding the network outage. And they said, should we learn of any malicious activity, we will respond accordingly. The service disruption began in the early hours of Thursday when AT&T customers started reporting difficulties placing calls, sending texts, and accessing the internet. Early on, the down detector site showed more than 32,000 reported outages across AT&T's network. As more people began their day, the number climbed, and the 75,000 outages reported by around 9.15 a.m. Eastern Time. AT&T finally began to turn the situation around late in the morning, reporting at 11.15 a.m. Eastern Time that it had restored three-quarters of its network Then at 3.10 p.m. Eastern Time, the company confirmed that it had restored wireless service to all of their affected customers. While it's reassuring to know that outage doesn't appear to have been caused by malicious activities, customers will be eager for more details about the incident, as well as information on what action AT&T is planning to take to ensure that it doesn't happen again. 
AT&T will be giving out $5 credit to customers affected by the widespread service outage. The company announced the individual $5 reductions Sunday night, but said prepaid business and Cricket wireless customers aren't eligible. AT&T announced Sunday that it would give a $5 in bill credit to thousands of customers affected by last week's widespread cell phone service outage, and the outage on Thursday affected more than 70,000 customers at its peak, but it included waves earlier in the day when outages for more than 32,000 and 50,000 customers were reported. AT&T said the following, We apologize for Thursday's network outage, said AT&T based in Dallas. We recognize the frustration. You bet. This outage has caused and know we let many of our customers down. The company said in the statement that the day of the outage that an initial review found a lack of service was caused by the application execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network, not a cyber attack. The outage drew an investigation from the Federal Communications Commission, that's the FCC, with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security lending a hand. AT&T said the $5 credit could take two bill cycles to take effect, and it added that the reduction won't apply to prepaid business and cricket wireless customers. For the portion of consumer and small business customers most impacted by the outage, we are automatically applying an account credit, it said. The company said it was also working to ensure such an outage isn't repeated. You keep saying that, and if it happens again, what are you going to do? The Federal Trade Commission fines cybersecurity company Avast $16.5 million for tracking and selling user data. Avast faces this fine from the Federal Trade Commission after the agency filed a complaint last Wednesday accusing the company of selling consumer data to third parties. The FTC says Avast, a firm that promises to protect consumer data from online tracking, has done the opposite, collecting and selling user browsing data without knowledge or consent while simultaneously misleading users. Avast Origins dates back to the late 1980s when its founders lived and worked in Czechoslovakia when it was part of the Soviet bloc. The company grew its antivirus software and other offerings over time, went public and merged with other companies in the cybersecurity space over time. Avas is now one of the several brands owned by Gen Digital, a publicly traded company with dual headquarters in Tempe, Arizona and Prague in the Czech Republic. In the complaint, the agency says Avas Limited, based in the United Kingdom and through its Czech subsidiary, claimed to block tracking cookies that collect data and prevent other trackers from following online activity, only to then sell that data to third parties, engaging in the behavior since at least 2014. Furthermore, the FTC says Avas told users it would only share information in anonymous and aggregate form, though this was not the case. A person's browsing history can reveal extraordinarily sensitive information. A record of the website someone visits can divulge everything from someone's romantic interests, financial struggles, and unpopular political views to their weight loss efforts, job rejections, and gambling addiction. 
FTC Chair Lena Khan said in a statement last Wednesday, The FTC charges that AVAS conduct was not only deceptive but also an unfair practice, Khan went on, because it, it is intrinsically sensitive. Browsing data warrants heightened protection. The FTC says AVAS sold data to a range of over 100 clients, including consulting firms, advertising companies, and data brokers. On top of the multi-million dollar fine, AVAS is being hit with a ban from the FTC to prohibit the company from selling or licensing data for advertising purposes. AVAS promised users that its products would protect the privacy of their browsing data, but delivered the opposite. Samuel Levine, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, wrote in a release last Thursday. AVAS bait-and-switch surveillance tactics compromised consumers' privacy and broke the law. AVAS confirmed that it reached a settlement with the FTC to solve an investigation related to its jump-shot subsidiary that AVAS voluntarily closed in January of 2020. And they said, While we disagree with FTC's allegations and characterization of the facts, we are pleased to resolve this matter and look forward to continuing to serve our millions of customers around the world, the company said in a statement. Roadblocks for Windows 11 upgrades that still exist. People aren't upgrading to Windows 11 as quickly as Microsoft would like. Despite the Richmond tech giant working on fixing the wrong of the past decade with Windows 11, people are still sticking around with Windows 10. As such, the company has tried a lot of things to encourage people to make the jump. Microsoft's most recent tactic was to publish a YouTube video on its channel titled Make Your Move to Windows 11 Easier. The video shows someone making the jump from Windows 10 to Windows 11, showing off how easy it is to do so. However, as much as Microsoft shows how easy it can be to transfer your files between operating systems, the video misses the point of why people aren't upgrading from Windows 10. And what are the obstacles that Windows 11 poses that did not appear in the Microsoft video? Well, there's increased hardware requirements. They can't upgrade even if they want to. Right off the bat, the video shows the intrepid Windows 11 Explorer upgrading their PC to the newest version. This already skips over one of the largest roadblocks for upgrading to Windows 11, its system requirements. Before Windows 11 was released, Microsoft published an upgrade advice tool that informed people how to prepare their PCs for the operating system launch. The tool would scan your system, check that your hardware was compatible with Windows 11, and give you the green light if everything looked good. However, it immediately confused people who tried it as the tool labeled relatively recent hardware as incompatible with the operating system. Everyone chalked it up as a bug with the tool. Their computer's hardware was clearly powerful enough to handle a new operating system. However, Microsoft stated its reasoning behind this odd judgment. Windows 11 would use TPM 2.0 as a core part of the system. If your hardware didn't support it, you weren't allowed to upgrade to Windows 11. If you still wanted to use Windows 11, you had to either upgrade your current hardware or purchase a brand new PC. 
Years later, Microsoft hasn't backed down on its system requirements for Windows 11, and people with older PCs are being faced with Windows 10 end of support date approaching on October the 14th, 2025. Once that arrives, people with incompatible PCs will either have to pay for Microsoft's Windows 10 extended support, change to a different operating system, or run the risk of using an unsupported operating system. And the new UI, your user interface, isn't friendly to everyone. The video focuses a lot on how easy it is to transfer your data over to Windows 11. And yes, Windows does make it easy to transfer files and apps over to the newer operating system. However, the video doesn't show off what a Windows 10 user-first feedback for Windows 11 is, which is, why is a start button in the middle of my screen? Windows 11 mixes things up quite a lot, and while it's possible for users to learn and adapt to the new design changes, it poses a huge obstacle for people who struggle with technology. For them, learning an operating system is a long-time investment, and having everything they learn thrown away in Windows 11 makes sticking with their current operating system a lot more appealing. Windows 11 is also missing key features. It's still lacking in some departments. If you are an expert at adjusting to new operating systems, the move to Windows 11 from 10 may still be jarring. There are a few features Windows 10 has that Windows 11 doesn't, and replacing them can be a chore. And while Microsoft has added features to Windows 11 from previous operating system version, it doesn't contain everything. For example, people who enjoy tweaking the taskbar on Windows 10 might find Windows 11 disappointing. At the time of writing, there is no officially supported way to move the whole taskbar to the sides or to the top of the screen. You also can't resize the taskbar, a problem shared by Windows 11 start menu, which is much more static than Windows 10's adjustable offering. As such, moving to Windows 11 is not as easy as Microsoft may like, especially if it doesn't contain the core features people are already used to. Fortunately, there are plenty of third-party tools that help. However, relying on external apps to solve core issues is not ideal, especially if they break every update and run the risk of being abandoned at any time. Migrating to Windows 11 isn't a nightmare, but it is not easy either. People aren't making the jump from Windows 10 to 11 for a wide range of personal reasons, and as Microsoft gears up to release Windows 12 sometime in the future, it needs to figure out a way to encourage Windows 10 users to upgrade to 11, ideally before the end of support date kicks in. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, how we deal with technology that is given to us by our employer. And I will tell you that this particular topic, it takes me back in time, just a, just a few years ago. And, and this is a very interesting situation and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you guidance on what not to do. So we're talking about remote workers at this point. We're talking about 
one of my coworkers was given a company computer to work from home. And while they were dealing with a lot of different things to to, you know, as far as the computer goes and and dealing with everything, they're great, fine and dandy, beautiful. You're there to produce for the company. However, companies rarely take a kind stance for you to utilize company equipment for personal purposes. See, what happens is. If you utilize your company-issued technology for something other than business, it starts to really threaten how you are dealing with the world. It threatens how you might have a long-term or sometimes even a short-term experience with the company. Why? Because there are so many different things that can happen with this. So I'm going to tell you that this person went forward and they utilized their computer for personal purposes and for business purposes. And this went for a matter of about six, seven, eight months. They didn't have their own computers, so they figured, okay, we'll just go surfing on the internet. We'll just utilize this. It's 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 a computer. It you know what what does it really matter about doing this? About utilizing the company computer for whatever it is we're going to do. And then he made a very big mistake. He was utilizing it, and he was connected to the company network. Not his own network. It it was connected through the company firewall. And what they found when he was connected through the firewall was he went to some websites that the firewall was set up to screen out. They were set up to prevent him from going there. And he went to a number of them and couldn't figure it out until... He was called into the office and they said, why were you doing this and that and this and that on company time? And he said, oh, I wasn't doing it on company time. I was doing it. uh, uh, Well, actually, I was doing it on the computer for work, but uh, that, that they owned, that they had provided. But he wasn't doing it anything bad. And they said, well, actually, you were. Because we don't want you utilizing this for personal purposes. This was for business purposes. So now you need to, well, unfortunately, you need to give us the computer and this is your last day. He went into a panic. He went into a major dramatic panic because everything he had done on the internet, everything he had done for computing, including, yes, developing his resume and developing, you know, doing all of his banking and everything else, all of the different files that he had downloaded, all of the different things that he had done were now on that hard drive. Everything. His entire technological future hit a roadblock. Because now it was all turned in. It had to be turned in. I'm going to tell you, you need to be very careful about this kind of situation. These days, computers to do all of your personal business are available for a matter of of a paycheck. And he lost his paycheck and many more behind that because he was not wise with 
the resources that were provided for him to do business with. Additionally, we get into a number of different areas that are outside of his personal usage. What could have happened had that computer been hit by a computer virus when he wasn't connected to the network, protected by the firewalls? What happens to all of the potential attacks that might come in through that computer that could threaten the company? There's a lot to this. There's a lot of different directions that this could take or could have taken. I'm going to tell you that, well, there may not be any express items that say you can't do this, or maybe there are. You shouldn't do this. Everything that I preach about, I admit I'm preaching on this topic. I'm, I'm going forward and I'm saying utilize computer resources that are provided to you by the company as the companies. You don't want to even on a break go and check your email. You don't want on any kind of different timing or whatever it is, whether it's on hours, off hours, utilize that computer for anything that is personal. It's just bad business. It's bad practice. It, it, it's just like going into your, uh, your company president's office and saying, hey, scoot out of the way. I'm going to play solitaire on your computer. You just shouldn't do it. Everything you do on a company-provided computer can be tracked, can be processed, can be folded, spindled, mutilated, all of that. And they're going to find out in that could really hurt you, really hurt you very bad. Don't do it. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Common misconceptions human resources has about independent contractors. The state of the gig economy, which refers to the large group of individuals who choose to work as independent agents, has been growing rapidly since the mid-2000s. Actually, it's exploding. According to a 2023 5RR survey of 2,000 U.S. workers, 73% said they will either start freelancing or continue freelancing in 2023. And here are some of the amazing statistics to note. In the United States, there are currently 73.3 million freelancers. By 2028, that number is expected to reach 90.1, according to Statista. 70% of small and medium businesses in the United States have at least occasionally used freelancers. 65% of freelancers make more money than they would in regular employment, according to the Pew Research. 61% of freelancers have two to three areas of expertise, according to Demand Sage. There are over 1.57 billion freelancers in the world as of 2023, according to Statista. It appears that the freelancing and independent contractor market is not going away anytime soon. In fact, more people will find opportunities to take on side gigs and even venture out as entrepreneurs as a result. The benefits of hiring independent contractors and freelancers is that companies that hire freelancers and independent contractors often do so because this arrangement provides plenty of benefits. One of the biggest benefits is having access to unique talent that may be difficult to find in the candidate pool. 
Other pros of hiring independent contractors and freelancers are is that it's near zero overhead cost. Contract workers generally cover their own expenses for computers and office equipment and software, utilities, and internet. They don't expect benefits like health or life insurance, retirement savings, or paid time off. This can save a great deal on the cost of maintaining a large office space and all the perks that you provide to employees. The McKinsey American Opportunity Survey revealed that freelancers are 1.4 times more likely to focus on improving their skills than traditional employees. They cannot afford to allow their knowledge to stagnate or become outdated by new technology. Freelancers are also more inclined to pursue career advancement opportunities in the projects they take on. There has long been a debate about whether traditional employees or independent workers are more productive. An Inc. article shares the following, that research suggests that in an eight-hour day, the average regular employee is only productive for two hours and 53 minutes. Freelancers, who most often work remotely, have been shown to work as much as four to five hours more per week when compared to in-office employees. Consider that freelancers have to work smarter, not harder, because they have to focus on billable hours versus employees who just watch the clock. The whole idea behind the gig economy is to have talent ready to work on a wide range of tasks without having to go through the expense and time of hiring a standard employee. Freelancers and independent contractors offer a great deal of adaptability, and this supports the ups and downs of organizations. It's perfect for growing organizations and those that are adding new solutions to their product and service lines. And why are some HR and recruitment pros concerned about hiring independent workers? With all these benefits in mind, why would any human resource leader be worried about bringing in independent workers on board? For some, it comes down to concern over trust. Since a freelancer can come and go as they please, what's stopping them from moving on to a competitor? Or worse yet, sharing company secrets. The use of contracts with non-compete agreements can help reduce risk. Creating secure systems for sharing and storing information can also help control how it's used. Concerns may be related to payroll and tax matters, which are managed differently for independent contractors and freelancers. The IRS set forth rules that determine what type of 1099 must be provided to report income paid to independent contractors. It is up to contractors to pay their own self-employment and income taxes. Organizations are responsible for reporting payments made to independent contractors over $400 annually. This is 10 times easier than dealing with the hassle of paying employees' taxes. Lastly, some feel there is a lack of control over hours worked, performance, and accountability with contract workers. Understanding that there is a different relationship with independent contractors and avoiding having the same requirements as employees can help prevent issues from coming up. Treating freelancers with respect, paying them promptly, and giving them regular work can set any organization up for success when utilizing independent workers. And let's address the elephant in the room. Something may be causing your organization to avoid hiring freelancers or independent contractors. It may be the nature of the business or the industry to not view independent contractors as a viable talent alternative. Yet, companies are utilizing freelancers to take care of specific tasks 
where they lack certain employee skills or for short-term influxes of work. In order to successfully hire freelancers and independent contractors, have a clear written policy in place that addresses those concerns and sets expectations. Select independent workers who have the right skills for the project and treat them respectfully. Have a system in place to assign tasks, track progress, and provide a communication channel. Pay your independent contractors promptly, and remember, they are not your employees. By taking these steps, you will find it more pleasant and efficient to hire freelancers and independent contractors for your organization. Plus, you'll be one step closer to attracting a larger candidate pool to your job postings. Microsoft is forcefully auto-upgrading eligible users running older versions of Windows 11 to 23H2 ahead of Moment 5. If you're running older versions of Windows 11 on your PC, Microsoft will auto-upgrade you to version 23H2 if you're eligible. Microsoft recently announced that it will start auto-upgrading eligible users running older versions of Windows 11 to version 23H2. Windows 11 version 22H2 is set to hit its end of life in October of this year. The automatic update is designed to ensure users continue to receive support and security updates. Microsoft is also expected to ship the next Windows 11 Moment 5 feature drop later this month. Which raises the question, if you're not eligible and you're running on Windows 11, and if you're running Windows 11 version 22H2, where do you go from there? Towards the end of last year, the Windows 11 2023 update shipped to users with many new features and quality of life improvements. This means that Microsoft currently supports two versions of Windows 11, versions 23H2 and 22H2. The latter is set to reach its end of support date in October of this year. We already know that Microsoft is getting ready to ship the next Windows 11 feature drop, also known as Moment 5, or February 2024, later this month. And unlike previous updates, the Moment 5 update doesn't ship with many features. Instead, it's centered on making Windows 11 operating system compliant with the Digital Markets Act, that's DMA, after Microsoft was listed by the European Union as a gatekeeper and given six months to make its services, including Windows interoperable. And now the company has published a new announcement on its official Windows 11 version 23H2 release health website indicated that Windows 11 2023 update is entering a new rollout phase. Consequently, it will start auto-upgrading users to Windows 11 version 23H2. Windows 11 version 23H2, also known as Windows 11 2023 update, is now entering a new rollout phase. They are starting to update eligible Windows 11 devices automatically to version 23H2. Does this affect your Windows 11 device? The company added that the automatic update mainly targets Windows 11 devices that have already or are approaching the end of servicing. Microsoft categorically states that all eligible home or pro-consumer devices running Windows 11 will be automatically upgraded to the Windows 11 2023 update. 
This move is designed to ensure that users remain protected and continue to leverage new and existing features in the operating system. As such, eligible users still running Windows 11 version 21H2 or 22H2 on their devices will be bumped to Windows 11 version 23H2. The automatic update is expected to start rolling out to users in waves using machine learning-based training. As you might already be aware, this isn't the first time Microsoft is auto-upgrading users to newer versions of Windows 11. Last year in January, the company auto-updated Windows 11 version 21H2 users to 22H2. Why are some Windows 11 systems not eligible for upgrades? When it comes to upgrading a computer or purchasing a new one, one component that often comes into consideration is the RAM or the memory. There is an ongoing debate regarding the types of RAM configuration and which is better, soldered RAM or non-soldered RAM. Soldered RAM refers to RAM that is permanently attached to the computer's motherboard. This means it cannot be swapped out or upgraded like traditional RAM modules. Unlike traditional socketed RAM, soldered RAM cannot be removed or replaced without specialized equipment. The main advantage of soldered RAM is its space-saving design. By eliminating the need for separate RAM slots, manufacturers can create thinner and lighter devices. This makes soldered RAM particularly popular in laptops and mobile devices where portability is a key factor. However, the downside of soldered RAM lies in its lack of upgradability. Since it is soldered directly onto the motherboard, it is not possible or practical to add more RAM or replace a faulty module RAM easily. This can be a significant drawback for users who anticipate future needs for increased memory or prefer the flexibility to upgrade the devices. Moreover, soldered RAM's permanent attachment also limits its repairability. If the RAM module fails, the entire motherboard may need to be replaced, leading to higher repair costs. Additionally, soldered RAM can potentially increase the overall cost of a device since upgrading or replacing the memory is not a viable option. Soldered RAM is directly integrated into the motherboard, eliminating the need for memory slots or sockets. This integration allows for a shorter electrical path between the RAM and the CPU, resulting in faster data transfer speeds, and the proximity of the memory to the processor reduces latency, enabling quicker access to data and improving overall system performance. Additionally, soldered RAM consumes less power compared to socketed RAM. This is because the absence of dim slots and their associated circuitry reduces power consumption, leading to improved energy efficiency and longer battery life, particularly in laptops and mobile devices. The cons of soldered RAMs are limited upgradability and repairability. Soldered RAMs, while offering advantages in performance and reliability, also comes with its fair share of drawbacks. One of the primary concerns with soldered RAM is its limited upgradability and repairability Unlike socketed RAM, which can be easily removed and replaced, soldered RAM is permanently attached to the motherboard. That means that if you want to upgrade the RAM capacity in the future, you will 
be unable to do so with solder ram. Furthermore, if the solder ram malfunctions or becomes faulty, it cannot be individually repaired or replaced. With socketed RAM, you have the option to replace a faulty RAM module yourself, minimizing downtime and cost. However, with solder RAM, you would need to replace the entire motherboard, which can be significantly more expensive. Ultimately, the lack of upgradability and repairability of soldered RAM can be a significant drawback. If there is not a spare memory slot available on a system with soldered on RAM, I would not, and I repeat, I would not consider the purchase of such a configured system. The Windows operating system is forever having increase in RAM requirements. This outweighs the benefits of soldered RAM configurations. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. On my mobile phone, on my smartphone, and uh, and I do have to charge that on a regular basis. That, you see that lead in there for you, Marty? Oh, that's a, so clever. I mean, what a segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's you charge a, your segue. <laughs> yes, Marty Winston joins me now here on Computer Talk Radio. Now, it's, a lot of our segments are also on the Personal Computer Radio Show, which Hank Key hosts and produces. Yes, yes. And uh, what's coming up now is part review, part category briefing. Hank called me and he asked about USB-C mm-hmm. and charging. He was trying to power some gear that would not turn on. And he became convinced that some USB cables passed only data lines, not power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that combo doesn't happen. (laughs) Never that way. There are some that have only power. Well, let's get into it. Getting power from a USB port to a device always happens. There's always some Mm -hmm. level of power. Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes there isn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. Getting data to flow between a USB port and gear doesn't always happen. But let me get specific. Yeah. For starters, not all USB ports, not even all USB-C ports, are designed to provide more than nominal levels of power. Mm-hmm. For Hank, the challenge was a mostly data port feeding something that wanted more power than was available. Yeah, yeah. And there are some cheap USB cables, I don't mean inexpensive, I do mean cheap, that only connect power leads. Mm-hmm. And so they skipped the data signal wires. Boy, what a savings that was, those little stretched up pieces of metal. That's also broadly true for cables with a wider, more rectangular USB-A connector, the old, the, the yeah. original one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, if they have a smaller, you know, racetrack-shaped USB-C at the other, that's, that can happen too. Many old USB-A ports only deliver half an amp of uh, current, 500 milliamps, meaning yeah. it's got no more than two and a half watts of power available at best. Some of the confusion about this comes from the much higher power abilities that arrive with PD, power delivery. Yes, yes. Uh, It's a higher current standard for USB-C charging. PD ports deliver at least six to ten times as much power as those old USB-2 ports. How high can they fly? I just got in a Rockform PowerTrip 100-watt USB-C charging cable. 100 Mm -hmm. watts on that Mm -hmm, cable. mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's made with copper, aluminum, DuPont Kevlar, bulletproof vest stuff, and, <laughs> and TPU, a thermoplastic polyurethane. If you get a high-power cable like this, you won't waste it on even trying to do a simple data connection. The online price for one that's two meters long, a little more than six and a half feet, 
is about 50 bucks. So that's, I mean, that's a, for many people, they might look at that as being a steep price, but yeah. it's that 100 watts is, yeah. is the real driver there. Yeah, if you have gear that needs 100 watts and you have a PD charge that can deliver it, you buy this puppy, you buy it once and it buys you charge time forever after. Yeah. Yeah, that that is that is going to be. I think a lot of people are going to say fifty dollars for a USB cable. But here's the difference: uh, you're you're headed out on the highway, and with those with those inexpensive or as you mentioned cheap cables, yeah, you're trying to hit highway speeds on a moped, and <laughs> it, it's just not going to work. Uh, the guy behind you didn't notice you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this is this is your two hundred horsepower uh, car zipping on down onto the highway and it will get up to those highway speeds that you need. So now, definitely a fast, a fast recommendation. Yes. We went through a lot of information here. There's a ton of information in the wikis. If you go online, check yeah. the, the wiki entries about USB-C, check what you have versus what you want to do with it. And if you get something special in, put a tag on it. So you know you're, what you're dealing with the next time you pull it yeah. out of the drawer. Yeah. yeah. I love Rock Farm, by the way. Uh, great folks. I, I've I, I interviewed them in person, oh, a decade ago. And they haven't been back. Was it your breath? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were located in Santa Ana, California. Uh, and along with the winds. And, and I've moved <laughs> away from there. Oh, a good long time ago. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, but you know that that's all fun. I actually just got in from Rock Farm. A USB-C and USB-A charger, and because of a transistor technology, gallium yeah, aluminum yeah. nitride, uh, it, it doesn't get as hot. It's more efficient at delivering power. Sure, sure yeah. And this little thing that—how would you describe it? it it's the size of a stack. I know of how your wife would describe it. Walwart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But when you need the power, it's smaller than a lot of the yes, other ones. Yes, yeah, And it delivers 65 watts. Okay, nice, nice. So, and what know, do I see on that? Do I see a, a USB-A and uh, two USB-Cs? Now, USB-A is your old style. And limited in how much it can deliver, square, yes. A square item. But a lot of cords are still in that USB-A format. Right, but you can buy a cord that isn't. Right, Rock yes, form makes yeah, them. yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody makes uh, all uh, all kinds of cords in all kinds of different directions. Right. This is the Rockform Power Trip, sixty-five watt, three-port uh, adapter. I don't have the price offhand, but whatever it is, if you need the power, it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot to this, and if you're if you're struggling with your charge with charging problems on any of these things, uh, consider upgrading again. Uh, as Marty said, the the charger, upgrading the cords yeah. and the cable. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are key troubleshooting points, and uh, I've had a few people reach out to me on similar issues. It's very common. Yeah, and by the way. This new generation of GAN devices means we're all going to be seeing, seeing a lot more devices that can deliver a lot more power in small packages. Sure. Yeah. As for now, this is Benjamin Rocco. That's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and the Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. 
the Trenton Computer Festival, TCF 2024. The theme is Putting Generative AI to Work. It's the first and longest-running computer festival in the world. Saturday, March the 16th, the time of the festival is 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. The website is tcf-nj.org for more information. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, March the 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, March the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, March the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number to call is 347-278-7320 for more information. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, March the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, March the 28th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and the website is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcast of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to Hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week. Thank you.